There were a lot of reasons they called him Dirty Harry, and he kept inventing new ones. That was the tagline for the 1971 film Dirty Harry starring Clint Eastwood. Eastwood gained popularity in the 1960s with movies like The Man With No Name and a few spaghetti westerns, three Italian films directed by Sergio Leone, namely A Fistful of Dollars, For a Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. In 1967, the three Italian-produced westerns were released in the United States and were immediate commercial successes making Clint Eastwood a box office star. Eastwood's first American Western, Hang 'em High, was released in 1968 and also did extremely well at the box office. The stage was set for Eastwood to be the star of a motion picture franchise, and Dirty Harry was born. Released on December 23, 1971, Dirty Harry was set in San Francisco and Clint Eastwood played Inspector Harry Callahan, who works to foil the plans of a psychopathic sniper referred to as Scorpio. Scorpio shoots a woman while she swims in a rooftop pool. He leaves behind a blackmail letter demanding he be paid $100,000 or he will kill more people. The killer is reminiscent of the Zodiac Killer who was killing random couples and individuals in San Francisco and other parts of California in the late 60s and early 70s. The Zodiac Killer was never officially caught or charged, but it was thought to be a man by the name of Arthur Lee Allen who met several of the criteria of known evidence, both physical and circumstantial in the case. Allen died in 1992 before he could ever be charged or convicted for the Zodiac murders. Dirty Harry is referenced in the 2007 David Fincher film, Zodiac. In Zodiac, Mark Ruffalo's character, Dave Toshi, is frustrated about not having many leads in the case, and he goes to see a movie with his wife. The movie is Dirty Harry. We see Toshi seated next to his wife. He slumps deeper and deeper into his seat until he has to leave. One imagines that the fantasy of a cop taking the law into his own hands, the way that Dirty Harry did, is simultaneously alluring and offensive, yielding a cognitive dissonance that's hard to bear. He walks out to the lobby. He's still there smoking a cigarette when the film ends. The mayor walks by and says, Hey, that Harry Callahan did a hell of a job with your case. Toshi then replies, yeah, no need for due process, right? Robert Graysmith, played by Jake Gyllenhaal in the film, is a San Francisco Chronicle cartoonist who has become obsessed with the Zodiac case. He joins Toshi in the lobby of the movie theater and tries to offer some encouragement. You're going to catch him. As he walks out, Toshi responds, pal, they're already making movies about it. Dirty Harry was a gritty and brazen film, even when compared to the already dark and serious films that were prevalent in the 1970s. It starts out bloody and never lets up. Early in the movie during a lunch break, Harry interrupts a bank robbery. He shoots three robbers and holds a fourth at gunpoint with the Smith & Wesson Model 29 revolver, bluffing him to surrender with an ultimatum. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Dirty Harry went on to gross $36 million in its initial theatrical release on only a $4 million budget. With success like that, sequels were sure to follow, and there were four more films in the series released over the next two decades. One afternoon in early April of 1974, on Hill Air Force Base in Clearfield, Utah, 
three African-American men sat in a theater for multiple screenings of Magnum Force, the second film in the Dirty Harry series. These men were Pierre Dale Selby, William Andrews, and Keith Roberts. For months now, the trio had been casing out stereo shops and jewelry stores in the area looking for the perfect score, a place they could rob in one shot. A few hours prior, Selby had picked up a flyer advertising that Magnum Force would be shown in the Air Force Base Theater. A clerk who worked at the theater would later be interviewed stating that Selby and Andrews watched Magnum Force several times. In fact, they had watched it three times in one day, with Roberts joining them for at least one of the screenings. There was a scene in Magnum Force that would give these three an idea. A means of killing employees at the hi-fi shop that they planned on robbing only a few days later. This method of murder would save them bullets, but could possibly inflict a maximum amount of pain. Something at least Selby had dished out before. Welcome to Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West, The Ogden Hi-Fi Murders, Part 2, Magnum Force. As Pierre Dale Selby, a short muscular man from Trinidad who had only joined the Air Force one year prior, sat and watched Magnum Force over and over again with his fellow helicopter mechanic associate William Andrews from Virginia, they had an idea. There's a scene in the movie where a pimp is sitting in the back of a cab and attempts to collect on debts owed to him by one of the prostitutes he oversees. He feels she's lying and holding out on him, so he proceeds to kill her by forcing her to drink liquid drain cleaner. She dies painfully but swiftly in only a matter of moments as the cab driver pulls over and quickly hops out of the vehicle, hoping to save himself from a similar fate. Where to? Just keep on going till I tell you to stop. Yes, sir. Drop that flag. You're on your way to see me, huh? Yes, to be honest, I'll I'll come here and come by the crib. I wouldn't do that. I've been waiting for you for one whole week. I've been working the convention over the hotel. No telephones at that hotel? I've been working like hell, you know? Look! Help me! Selby and Andrews, but most likely Selby envisioned using a similar method of killing potential people who might impede their robbery plans at the hi-fi shop, hopefully dishing out a swift death. But things in real life often don't pan out the way they do in the movies. Several days later, on the evening of April 22, 1974, our story returns to the hi-fi shop on Washington Boulevard. Selby is upstairs carrying stolen high-end stereo equipment out to one of the vans driven to the robbery. Keith Roberts stays in the van as the getaway driver and lookout. William Andrews, the tallest and most imposing of the three, is in the basement, his 38 pointed directly at Stan, Michelle, and Courtney as they lay bound on the floor. Another hour passes, with squeaking, popping, and shuffling upstairs, and the stillness and fear in the basement. Andrews continued to threaten to shoot all three captives if anything went wrong. Stan and Courtney tried reasoning with him and pleaded with him to leave them alone. 
It was now just after eight o'clock. The intruders had been in the hi-fi shop for well over two hours. The vehicle, driven by Keith Roberts, had been started up and pulled away across the alley, and another had been backed up in its place. Andrews had gone back upstairs, and the footsteps overhead continued shuffling back and forth. Suddenly, there was scurrying upstairs, and Selby and Andrews raced down the stairs. They stood in the shadows at Courtney's feet, away from any light coming in from a window that might give them away. In the alley behind the building, a car door slammed. They could hear footsteps crunching on the gravel. The footsteps stopped and then started again, moving closer to the building. Everyone was silent as the back door of the shop opened. For a brief moment, the basement that had been pitch black and holding the two robbers and three captives in the quiet dark had a shaft of light flash across the floor as the back door to the shop opened and closed. Andrews and Selby had their guns drawn at this point, fixed on the unknowing individual who had just walked through the door. The person had entered, paused at the top of the stairs, then proceeded to walk through the hallway above in a slow and contemplative fashion, as if walking through a museum. The footsteps stopped again, and the shop was silent. Selby crept up the stairs, his weapon still drawn, Andrews behind him. The footsteps then began again and turned toward the basement. Andrews yelled, "'What are you doing here, man?' They pushed the unknown man down the stairs, and he fell in front of the three captives. Both guns were pointed at him. Stan then noticed that it was his father, Orrin. Why do you have to come down here, Dad? Stan grumbled, knowing that his dad was now part of this mess and might suffer a similar fate. Stan hadn't come home from work on time, so Orrin and Stan's mother had grown nervous. Orrin decided to drive to the shop to check on him. Pierre fired his gun at the ceiling, and the loud blast echoed through the basement. "'What'd you do that for, man?' Andrews yelled out. Pierre fired another shot at the ceiling. He now had a glazed-over look in his eyes, almost like an animal. Michelle screamed, "'I'm too young to die!' The smell of gunpowder filled the room. Stan told the intruders again to just take the stereos and leave. Oren yelled as well, "'Take the gear and leave. We can't identify you, and we certainly won't. Selby and Andrews walked to the bottom of the stairs and began to argue. I don't have a criminal record, man. I can't risk it, Andrews said. Oren yelled again. If you guys take the stuff and leave, you'll never be identified or caught. What are we going to do now? Andrews asked Pierre. What I told you that we would do, said Pierre. He whispered to Andrews to get the bottle of Drano that they had brought with them. The captives weren't told what it was. They would be told that it was vodka with a German drug and that it would put them to sleep for a few hours. In the back room of the basement, Andrews found a green plastic cup. From the little bit of light coming from the stock room, the four laying on the floor could see that Andrews was holding a plastic container about a foot tall, likely with some type of liquid in it, but it was covered with a brown paper bag. Pierre chuckled quietly to himself. He handed the cup to Oren Walker and asked him to give it to the other three. Orrin wouldn't take the cup, so Pierre tried to force him to, and Orrin looked away. Andrews pointed the gun at him, and Orrin didn't move. Then Pierre tied up Orrin with some stereo cord that he found from the stockroom. Now what? asked Andrews. The two moved to the corner, away from the captives, and had another quiet discussion. I can't go through with this, Andrews yelled out. Just then another car pulled up behind the building, and again footsteps across the gravel grew closer to the back door of the shop. The back door of the shop again opened, this time swiftly, and Carol Nesbitt, Courtney's mother, turned and looked down the stairs. She was staring straight into Pierre Selby's gun. What are you doing here? Andrews yelled at her. 
Carol yelled back that she was checking on her son. She knew that he had been in the area to pick up the photos from Inkley's and he was several hours late in returning home and didn't make it to his flight school class at Weber State at 7 p.m. She had driven through the back alley of the hi-fi shop and noticed Courtney's car parked there. What's going on here? Carol said. Courtney could hear that it was his mother that had entered the store and he knew that she would now be part of this whole mess. Pierre grabbed her by the arm and quickly led her down to the basement. Andrews closed the door upstairs. There was still a dim light in the basement from the stockroom. Pierre pulled Carol next to her son Courtney and tied her up as well, making the amount of captives now five, when it had originally only been two. Pierre grabbed the cup and the container of what he knew to be Drano and told the group that it was vodka mixed with a German drug. It would put them to sleep for a few hours and then the robbers would be gone and everyone would be okay. He filled the cup and knelt next to Carol and put the rim of the cup to her lips. I don't drink, Carol said. You do now, Pierre replied. He grabbed Carol and forced her to drink the liquid. She began to choke and cough loudly, spitting the liquid from her mouth and nose. He walked back and filled up the cup again. He then knelt next to Courtney and forced him to drink it. Courtney could feel the liquid burning his lips, throat, and chest. He then threw up. The cup was filled again and Stan was propped up and forced to drink, as was Michelle. She was forced to drink only a little bit of it. The fifth person in line was Oren Walker, who had witnessed the reactions of the other four, so he knew what was coming. The basement was still quite dark, so he was able to spit some of it out before ingesting it, so his reaction wasn't quite as severe. Again, Andrews and Selby had a quiet conversation over in the corner. The conversation then stopped. Selby asked Andrews, What time is it? Nine o'clock, Andrews said. Andrews ran upstairs and out the back door and the group could hear one of the vans start up. Then the van backed up to the building and the engine stopped. He came back in and went back down to the basement. Everyone was struggling at this point as the Drano began to really take effect. The men began to wipe the basement for prints to clean up any proof they may have left of their presence. Selby put on some surgical gloves and knelt down and removed Orrin Walker's wristwatch and he pulled Mr. Walker's wallet out of his back pocket. The two tried to put duct tape over the victim's mouths so that the Drano would take more of an effect, but the duct tape wouldn't stick as their mouths were already blistering. He looked through the wallet and found $5. He was going to put the wallet back in Warren's pocket when Andrews told him to take the whole wallet. Pierre put the wallet in his own pocket and they proceeded to take the wallets of the others. The two women were wearing jewelry, but that was left untouched. Selby and Andrews argued yet again, and it was clear that Andrews didn't want to go through with whatever Selby had planned. Selby asked Andrews to give him 30 minutes. Andrews ran upstairs and back out into the alley. The lone gunman now in the basement, Pierre grabbed his weapon and walked over to the end of the line. He crouched next to Courtney and found the back of Carol's head. The corner of the room exploded as he shot Carol. Blood soaked the green shag carpet. He moved to Courtney where he put the now hot muzzle of the gun against Courtney's head and pulled the trigger again. Courtney fell limp. Part of the bullet lodged against his skull and the other portion split off and went down toward his brain stem. Pierre then stood over Oren and fired down at his head, missing as the bullet hit the carpet and ricocheted. He stepped again to his right and fired at Stan, the bullet entering Stan's head. Pierre quickly ran upstairs as if to check and make sure no one from the alley had heard the gunshots. Michelle whispered to Stan and asked him if he was okay. Stan said in a low voice, I've been shot.
Pierre came back down the stairs and stood over Oren and fired again, this time hitting him in the head. Oren fell closer to the floor when he knew he had been shot. He fought to stay lucid and could still wiggle his toes. Only Michelle was left. Pierre stood over her with the gun as Michelle pleaded for him not to kill her. He crouched down and picked her up off the floor, the gun still pointed at her, and led her into the stockroom workshop area where he sexually assaulted her for the next 20 minutes. Warren could still hear his son stand breathing and thought there might be hope. Courtney and Kathy lay nearly motionless but still breathing. Pierre led Michelle back into the room, opened the door to the employee bathroom adjacent to the stairs, and she used the restroom. She then returned where Pierre forced her to lay down again next to Oren. Pierre ran upstairs and Michelle asked Oren if he was okay. He motioned to her with proof that he was still alive. A moment later he closed his eyes again and continued to play dead. Pierre quickly came back downstairs and checked Oren's throat and found a pulse. He then crouched over Michelle and shot her, killing her instantly. Pierre placed some stereo cord around Oren's neck and attempted to strangle him. Oren continued to play dead. When Selby found that the stereo cord wasn't working, he laid Oren on his side and Pierre grabbed the quickest thing he could find, a ballpoint pen, and wedged it in his ear and jammed it into his head. He raised his foot and stomped on the edge of the pen, driving it deeper into Oren's head. Pierre kicked the pen two more times, and on the third kick, the pen angled and entered Oren's throat. Pierre quickly ran up the stairs and out the back door and the hi-fi shop was completely silent. Stan and Michelle lay completely motionless. Both of them were dead. At some point, Carol had rolled onto her back and was barely breathing. From the darkness of his corner, Courtney moved and began crawling, making a slight moan as he made his way across the room. His arms still bound, he made his way to the bottom of the stairs. Earlier in the night, when Stan hadn't returned home from the hi-fi shop at his regular time for dinner, his dad had driven to the shop to see if maybe he had problems closing up or possibly had problems starting his jeep which was old and had mechanical issues. Two hours had passed since Oren had left the house to go check on Stan. Mrs. Walker began to worry and a little after 10 o'clock she took Stan's younger brother and headed to the shop where they rang the buzzer in back of the building. There were no vans parked there anymore. Pierre Dale Selby, William Andrews, and Keith Roberts had already vanished into the night with $20,000 worth of stereo equipment. Had Mrs. Walker and her son shown up 15 minutes earlier, they would have been the sixth and seventh victims that night, when there were originally only two. Oren heard the buzzer and yelled for his wife and living son to call the police. They kicked in the door and found what no one expected. One of the most horrific crimes in the history of Utah had taken place that Monday night in a small shop on Washington Boulevard in Ogden. Join me next time for the conclusion of the three-part series on the Ogden Hi-Fi Murders. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you for listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West. Mm-hmm.